Ooh. Hey, there we go. Hi, everybody. Jesus, could I look like more like Teen Wolf, geriatric teen? Not even Teen Wolf, just geriatric wolf. I'm getting a haircut tomorrow. It should be better by tomorrow. I'm getting a haircut first thing in the morning, actually, so should be better. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 182 of my live chat. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Um, this is how it goes. We do about an hour of free questions. I put up a thread. You guys fill it up with questions. We'll do that for about an hour. And if you want to, certainly under no obligation to do so, but if you choose to, you can leave a donation, put a question attached to it, and we'll get to those at the end of the program. Or you can cheat the system, so to speak. You can become a member. And as a matter of fact, this is how you do that. You can become a member of the channel, youtube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join. And uh, if you pay for that, you can just ask a free question anywhere. It's free no matter what. So how great is that, right? Pretty great. All right. <clears throat> Very good. Um, thanks to, uh, to you guys for tuning in. Let's see. On the docket today, um, how about this new PBC news going to Amazon? And I don't think that's it, folks. I think it's actually more to the story than that. We can get to that if you want. Uh, the John Jones sort of saga that continues. There are some fights this weekend that are actually semi-decent. We can get to that as well. So whatever's on your mind, your chat as much as it is mine. Let's do that now. So without further ado, uh, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. All right. Very good, very good. Um, <clears throat> let me check my phone. Okay, very good. Uh, let's see. All right. Let's turn this tick ticker off. There we go. Very good. Um, hope you guys are well. Been a long day. I've been up since 445. I normally, I've, I've really cut down on these. I should tell you, I've, I only have like one or two a week now. I really cut down on them, but, um, I got up at 445 to do an interview with someone today and then they changed the interview time at the last minute. <laughs> And so I got up for no reason, and uh, I'm pretty tired as a consequence. So we'll see how that goes. All right. You don't care about that. Why should you? Let's get to some of these questions, shall we? Boom. We go to this arrangement. All right. Let's go to this one here. Uh, Luke, for room service diaries, do you guys typically aim for a guest who is currently relevant in the combat sports or just whoever you guys feel is worth an episode? Uh, also, who would you and Brian like to feature on the next episode? Uh, who do we pick? We we pick people that are relevant in the combat sports market at that time to the extent possible. But here, here's what I would say. We don't send invites to anyone we don't want to talk to. Like We're not just going to have someone on there just to have them on there. Um, to fill them up. Like we, we didn't do that. So, uh, that's the big thing. I mean, here's the reality. Like everyone and their brother has like a sit down podcast these days. So they're, they're very, very difficult to differentiate. I would actually like to redo the series a little bit. I have some ideas about how to make it somewhat different. Um, meaningfully, I hope, but I guess we'll see. Um, but yeah, like it's <sighs> MMA. I would not say generally has a lot of great conversationalists. But what I would say is, if you really begin to dig and look and try, you can actually find some interesting conversations with basically, uh, almost, not quite, but almost anyone. And um, we try to explore that a little bit more on RSD. Um, 
as best we can. That's kind of the reality with it. But yeah, that's how it goes is basically who, and also like, who can we get to the studio? I mean, it's just logistical concerns. Who's available that week? Who can we get to the studio? Who's willing to travel? Like, you know, it's kind of difficult uh, with all those various hurdles, but that's the basic idea. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this person asks, during your interview with Benil Dariush, he mentioned seeing Tony Ferguson glitching. Yes, he did. During his previous fight, the one that they had. Did you ever get around to re-watching? No. Good question. Uh, what does the average person look out for? Also, what did you think? Uh, what do you think is happening in the brain? Okay, I could not even hazard a guess about what is happening in the brain. You know what? That is such a great question. Damn, I did forget to go back and look at that shit. Man, I got to tell you, like, I'm so bummed out by the situation that Tony's in. I haven't gone back and really looked at the footage. I'm not sure I'm going to like what I see, obviously. I don't think anybody really is, probably Tony included. Um, I need to do that. I need to do that, like, either this week or next week. I should, I should probably make a video out of that, like the, the Tony Ferguson glitch. And again, that's not my word. That's the word that Benil used. If you haven't seen the the interview, the rough approximation is that he said he would stand across from him and look, and he would be kind of, like, glitching, like, kind of twitching, kind of checked out for a moment. I have to go back and look and see exactly what he might be talking about. I don't know if I can find it or not. Um, maybe it was only something he was able to observe by being right in front of him. But uh, if there is, if it's observable on tape, then I'm gonna I'm gonna make a video out of it. Yeah, because that is, that was a crazy revelation, and kind of a sad one too. Uh, all right, let's do this one. Luke, uh, you get to be matchmaker and make one fight from every division. Which ones do you most want to see? Uh, they obviously can, but don't have to include champions of each division. Uh, okay, flyweight. Um, I don't have a super high preference for anything other than Brandon Moreno if he can win his next fight, I guess. Or let's see if he fills in on short notice, or or I should say not short notice, but if he fills in as the backup, which he might for this uh, upcoming 296 bout. At bantamweight, um, I would love to see God Song Yudong versus Pyotr Jan. I want to see Corey Sandhagen versus Umar Nurmagomedov. I want to see um, Marab versus Henry. I, the, the title fight, like all the variations there. One forty-five. This is easy. Volk versus Taporia. No, no doubt about it. Volk getting very confident, as he should be, of course, but getting very confident. Have you guys seen that? He's like, oh yeah, me and my stablemate will fight both Sapporo bros in the same card and teach him a lesson. I'm like, okay, that's bold, very bold. Um, let's see, 155. This is very simple. Islam Makachev, Charles two versus Saryukian two, whatever. 170. I would say the winner of Colby Leon versus Shavkat Rachmanov. Again, a title fight doesn't necessarily have to be, but that's where my head's at. 185. Yes, of course you've got DDP versus Strickland coming up. That's going to be kind of interesting. But do 185. What's Hamzat role? What's his role going to be? Don't forget about Kopilov. Don't forget about Pfeiffer. Don't forget about Brendan Allen. Don't forget about, I mean, I could go Bo Nickel. I could go down the list. Dude, all of a sudden, middleweight is like exploding with talent. It's crazy to see, which is great. 205. I mean, who really gives a shit too much about 205? But, you know, Pereira defending his title, I guess, is good enough for me. And at, at, at heavyweight, um, yeah, Aspidal Jones or Nganu Jones or something like that. Um, and then the women's side, I don't have like a super high preference for the fights right now. There's not a lot, I, I will tell you, like the women's game has certainly improved to a pretty dramatic degree, but the star power quotient has dropped off the most 
I've seen it in quite some time. Um, obviously, like the, all the bantamweight figures have mostly moved on. Misha Tate did get a nice win last weekend, but the star quotient on the women's side of the game, I think, has suffered um, substantially. And so that kind of diminishes, not again, not the quality of the fights per se, but it diminishes. I mean, they're doing this this bantamweight title fight between um, uh, Bueno Silva and then Rocky Pennington. I mean, it's not, a, it's not it's not a low quality fight. I wouldn't say that, but it's not a blockbuster event. I think that's pretty fair. So I don't really have strong preferences there. Um, I guess at one fifteen, I would want to see Zhang Weili versus Yan Xiaonan. One twenty five. Um, Got to be, uh, what's her name? Uh, Blanchfield taking on, um, Jesus, my fucking memory is just a goddamn nightmare. At 125, it would be, obviously you have to do the Grasso rematch with Shevchenko too, but, oh, Suarez. Suarez, I want to see Suarez fight Blanchfield. That's the one I want to see. That's the one I'm, like, curious about. All right. Next one. Oops, it's a little bit too high. There we are. Uh, Luke. <clears throat> How did you develop such an understanding of the fight game? Well, that's a debatable level of understanding. Uh, in addition to regularly training in my 20s and early 30s, early to mid 30s, what did your regimen look like in terms of understanding tactics, strategy, and game planning? Oh, right. For those who really want to elevate their understanding and apply said understanding to the game, what would you advise? So this is more of an understanding of the fight game itself, not the, when you say game, not the business of MMA, not how it works between athletic bo uh, sanctioning bodies and... Um, you know, matchmakers, but you mean the actual fighting in the surface itself. It took a long time, actually. It took a long time. Um, again, it, I, I, I have operated in a privileged position. Here is basically what happened to me. I began to ask questions to fighters that I already knew the answer to, and I didn't mean to do that. I, I, I thought I didn't know the answer. And actually, what preceded that was I would ask them that, like thinking I'm going to hear something new, and then they would tell me stuff that I mostly already kind of knew. And you, you build on top of that, you know, that I had a, a, some degree of training experience um, for many years. And I had this really, op this amazing opportunity to constantly ask fighters, constantly ask coaches, what are you looking for in this scenario? What does this context mean? What does this do, this particular situation? What are you looking for? And I began to build an understanding about how fighters build game plans, how coaches make adjustments, um, how fights are, uh, how adjustments are executed, um, what their costs are, like what, what kind of general considerations are you looking for when there's stance, whether they're blitzing, whether they're backing up, whether the cage is rounded, whether it's flat paneled, all the different permutations. I just asked question after question. Dude, I've been, I'm, I've been doing this since I was like 26. I'm 44. <laughs> I'm fucking old. I've been doing this for quite some time. And over the course of that time, you can develop, um, if you are consistent enough, that's enough time to learn. I'm not going to say anything, but that's enough time to learn most things. Most things. Well, how long has it been? So then uh, 18 years. I mean, you can learn That's a, 18 years, man. You can develop a lot of different, again, to the extent that I even want to say I have any expertise. I have information. I have some knowledge. I have some experience in this. Expertise seems to me like a very strong word. I wouldn't want to use it, but some understanding of what's happening here. Dude, I've had 18 years to kind of lean plus because I actually started doing uh, stuff before that in my early 20s when I was in the Marine Corps. So that's actually not even, and a little bit of judo as well. So even that's not really true. So we're talking about a long, I mean, let's say 20 years conservatively. I mean, that's a long time. That's a long time to either both have practical application, to have be, I've been around 
I met Ryan Hall when he was a blue belt and I've had access to his, his brain for all this time, you know, like hear, hearing him like on theories on this, on theories on that, reading books, talking to coaches, t- attending seminars, watching seminars online. I mean, all of these things over the course of time, you begin to be like, dude, I've, I've begun to get a little bit of this. So, you know, this is why I always issue caveats or I should say uh, qualifications to any kind of analysis that I do, which is that I don't have the requisite experience that you might or normally encounter for someone who's doing this kind of job. And I kind of want to make sure folks know that I'm, I, I, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I'm sure there's stuff that I've missed. But most of the stuff, I mean, fights all follow patterns. And, and by the way, you can get good at like the actual act of breaking down. You can like work on that particular skill set as well not just picking up how the fight game works but then how to explain the different parts of it i don't know that i can explain all the different parts of it in fact i'm 100 certain i cannot i cannot do that um but guys if you've got 20 years to do something and you've got access to the world's best minds in order to like learn more about it you're gonna pick up on shit if you want to if you want to and then you add in any kind of practical experience on top of that like to me it'd be kind of crazy to be in this industry for 20 years and still look at fights and be like not really knowing what you're looking at. And again, that's going to be the case no matter what. You're never going to have a full, complete knowledge. But um, yeah, it's kind of strange. Kind of strange to me. It's kind of strange that people do that kind of shit, to be honest with you. With the amount of time I've had, I'd be embarrassed if I knew less. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be legit embarrassed. Here we go. Luke, in a hypothetical world in which UFC would agree to it, all right, what do you think would happen if all the UFC champions fought the best of the champions in the rest of the organizations? Do you think the UFC would have a strong winning percentage or would it be closer to 500? There's no doubt in my mind they would have a strong winning percentage. But let me just tell you this. When Zufa purchased WEC... At the time, what they really wanted it for was 155 and down. They wanted it for their, um, they wanted it for obviously flyweight, for bantamweight, that whole thing, right? Flyweight eventually as well. Um, that's what they really purchased it for. But it had divisions above that. It had, I mean, Steve the Can- Steve the Robot Cantwell competed for them. Brian Stan was a champion for WEC, I think, at 205, right? They had other these divisions. When those guys came over. There was no hullabahoo about it. It didn't mean much. But there was some consideration about, like, what would it mean for the 155 guys to come over? Because 155 was already hot in UFC, and now we're going to bring in Pettis. Now we're going to bring in Henderson. Now we're going to bring in some of these guys, Cerrone, whoever. And I can tell you affirmatively, affirmatively, there were definitely a ton of people who thought those guys were going to get washed. I mean, they thought that, no questions asked. And that didn't turn out to be true at all. Henderson became a champion. Actually, Melendez, who was the big guy over in Strike Force, never did, although that's somewhat controversial. Uh, Pettis became champion. Cerrone never did. Got close a couple times, but you can go on down the list. There are people who thought Uriah, by the way, was going to wash Jose Aldo. That didn't happen. But it was in particular that 155 class that there was a lot of people who were like, yeah, those guys are not going to do well. And then they came over and started fucking doing really well. And the biggest one of those was with the Strike Force matriculation in 2011 slash 2012. When those guys came over, there were so many people who thought Luke Rockhold was going to get washed. There was there was definitely some hype about Daniel Cormier, especially after beating Josh Barnett. So he might have been the exception to the rule. 
But in general, like how did the folks view Strike Force coming over? Most folks, or I should say many anyway, thought they would be a nice addition to the UFC, something akin to like Bellator joining PFL. I mean, that's obviously not quite right, but you know, how much better is PFL now that they've got Bellator as part of their roster? They're obviously significantly better. But they didn't think they were going to challenge for titles. And then it turns out the Strike Force guys came over and just mowed through people in many, 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 so many different ways that people did not expect. So listen, we're not in that same era. This is not 2011 again. We're not dealing with that scenario. But what I can say is, while it is certainly fair to assume the UFC would have a good winning percentage, um, the idea that their guys would just, you know, win 90% of fights, I find to be, I wouldn't believe that at all. I would not believe that at all. No. Um, 60, maybe 70, something like that, maybe, which is still, by the way, super high. I mean, again, they would do well. They would do really well. But I have seen enough of this movie. And of course, by the way, there were people thinking, even the guy, dude, what did Chris Lieben say to Anderson Silva? And you can be like, oh, Anderson Silva's the greatest of all time. People didn't know that when he fought Chris Lieben in his UFC debut at UFC Fight Night. What did Chris Lieben say? He said, I'm going to beat him so bad, I'm going to send him back to Japan. They thought some of these guys were imposters. They knew some of them were good, but they thought some of them were imposters. And that didn't turn out to be true at all either. So Dan Henderson came over from Pride as well. So every time there has been this kind of UFC absorbing another roster, there have always been folks who thought, oh yeah, again, some fun additions to the roster, but they're not going to challenge for supremacy. And every single time they challenge for supremacy. Every single time. Every single time. So we're at a different stage now where UFC has so much talent. It would be foolish to think that they would go sub 500. Um, but do I think that there's going to be guys on the Bellator roster who are going to give some of those guys at UFC a run for their money? Yeah, of course I do. Sure. Sure. Dream card for UFC 300. Man, I haven't even really, I don't even know who's available. Except Connor, I would guess you got. Did you see top ten pay per views in UFC history? Eight of the ten are Connor. I think two are Lesnar, or maybe one is Lesnar, one is Rousey, something like that. Connor's just the absolute goddamn king of this of this uh, uh, market. Um, I don't know. This is such a good question. I don't have a great answer for it because I'm really not even sure who's available. I guess Connor fighting either Chandler or somebody would be the headlining one. Obviously, he's not available, but I would want to see John Jones versus Stipe. Um, I'd want to see Bo Nickel on it in some capacity. I hope that they bring him back for that. Um, again, I want to see Zhang Wiley versus Yan Xiaonan. I want to see Aaron Blanchfield back in action. I mean, any, any of the, the fights that I mentioned previously per weight class, to the extent that they're available, port them over. That's what I'd want for 300, with the exception of like putting Connor at the top of it. Obviously, you wouldn't need to, right? Uh, let's see. Luke, would Sean Brady be Ian Gary's next opponent if Ian beats Luke? That's certainly what he wants. Brady called him out, yep. And there is sort of a jam at the top for title challengers. It might go that way. It might go that way. I think Sean Brady likes the matchup. I think he likes his matchup with basically anyone on the mat at 170 pounds, but Ian Gary in particular, who's going to be much more of a striker, lanky. Right? I mean, that's exactly the kind of guy that is sort of a shorter, stockier, stronger 
Sean Brady grappler type is going to want to uh, be. But dude, like Sean Brady's performance against Kelvin Gastelum, it's not raising any eyebrows, which bums me the fuck out because I know if Kelvin Gastelum had won, there would have been all kinds of <clears throat> A, people burying Sean Brady because that would have been a back-to-back Muhammad, um, uh, uh, Bilal Muhammad, and then ultimately this contest back-to-back. They would have just absolutely buried Sean Brady. I know that for a fact. So the fact that they're not like singing his high praises to me is a little bit unfortunate, but okay. There's that. Um, and then on top of it, dude, like the, the, the mastery he had to ride those positions the way he did, it doesn't look like much because one guy can't ever seem to create a scramble. It just kind of looks like what it would look like if I had a backpack on, a literal backpack, and then just rolled around. Yeah, of course the backpack follows me. It's attached to me. But it's actually so much more sophisticated skill that takes years on the mat of making mistakes about what to do when they do this and they do that. And by the way, don't forget, Gaslam had that great reversal where he grabbed over the top of himself and then spun into him. And then Brady had to get up and obviously get the, the takedown eventually again. But dude, Brady's work on the mat was exquisite. Exquisite. Really, really good. I think if he can consistently get the takedown, on whoever he's fighting at 170, he can't lose. Now, that requires having the consistent level of takedowns, which, you know, I don't know that he could do that with a rematch with Bilal Muhammad. We would have to see. I don't know if he can do that with Rachmanov. We would have to see. By the way, I spoke to Rachmanov just before this live chat. Um, and if you are asking, Luke, did you ask him about eating horse meat since the UFC did a special on him? And not just about that, but about how much he loves horses and how much he loves horse meat and how good it is. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I brought up Alistair Overeem. Yes, I did. Um, that should be out soon. So um, I would love to see that fight. Let me pull up the rankings at 170 so we can get a better sense. So at 170, if I may, I'll put you all in on this. So here's 170 right here. So they got Kamaru Bilal sitting at two, Colby Burns. Burns is going to do Burns is going to fight Jack De La Maddalena. Did you guys see that? Holy shit, that's a great fight. Shavkat Rachmanov sitting at five. He's going to be taking on Stephen Thompson sitting at six. Here's Brady at seven. Neil, they're bo- uh, no, Neil, I guess oh, I wouldn't want to see that one. Luke is eight. So then you have who's below Brady. You would have Neil, Luke, or Machado in, or sorry, Machado, Gary in that space. So that might work. Uh, and especially because everyone here is kind of tied up. I don't think any of these folks are going to take a fight with Sean Brady. So yeah, dude, that actually might end up making total sense. You might get Sean Brady versus Ian Gary. And I have to tell you, it really would depend on to what extent I think Ian Gary can defend the takedown. I'm still curious to see more about what Sean Brady can do on the feet, but if he can get it to the mat, and that is an if, but if he can get it to the mat, he, I think he can ragdoll anybody. His work down there is exceptional. It's not a lot of ground and pound, but it's a lot of very, very tight positioning, which is hard to do from a lot of those positions. It, it requires <clears throat> significantly uh, well-honed abilities. Luke, the, the card last week in Austin showed the quality of fights the UFC is able to deliver. True. We all know the almost weekly schedule means we seldom get cards this impressive. My question, how many events per month would needed to be consistently offer cards as good as the Austin one? Yeah, I mean, I think what you can say is the UFC is good 
like in terms of quality, and again, even if you did this, there would still be injuries late, right? Their guys would still fall through. Um, you still would have cards that kind of fell apart at the end, even if you were more restrictive in how many you added. I would say that the UFC is somewhere in a good spot when they have high 30s to mid 30s in terms of an overall schedule of events. Somewhere in that 32, 36-ish sort of range it, to me it seems like a great spot because you got one pay-per-view um basically for the month for all the months so that's 12 it leaves you about 20-ish 24-ish events so you can have two more per uh month on top of that to give your fight nights or whatever and even then that's a little high you don't even have to have that much but i tend to think once once they start getting into the 40s or the high 30 anything really above 36 37 you're starting to get into some trouble but when they're in the high 40s i think they're well past the high 40s now uh, or I should say um, well past the low 40s now. I think they're somewhere in the mid 40s. I, I have to go and double check. I think anything anything in the 40s is a problem. Um, low 30s, mid 30s, really. Yeah, so I, yeah, 35 is probably, I would say, 36. Something like that is going to be, um, that, that that range between that and the 30 and 32 is going to be a good range. That's, that's really your sweet spot there. Um, but, you know, they get paid to offer more content. So they just build a roster that allows them to do more content. But of course, as I've explained a million times, you, once you've got the 10 best in each division, you can't add more to that spot. If you're going to add more people to the division, by definition, yes, there will be some movement inside of it. But if you're going to add more from the outside, uh, unless it's some kind of very you know rare situation where someone's a high-level fighter at some other organization, you're only going to add at the back end. You're going to add after 20, after 25, after 30, after 35. And that's just not nearly as much or good quality or or even rare. Um, so that's that's the that's the scaling. You can't scale past 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You can only scale past 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great question. So glad you asked. What do you feel about all the talk of stripping the champion's belt lately? Previously, it was done under very odd circumstances and very rarely. But the trend of honor relinquishing set by Yiri has changed the norm around it. Not totally. Not totally. Uh, Kyoji Horiguchi, before Yiri did it when he tore his ACL, decided to give up the belt. Uh, that was the Bellator. That wasn't UFC, but that happened. Uh, no one prompted him to do that. He just went ahead and gave it up. Now, of course, it's a little bit different. He's a little bit more important to the Japanese market. It was at bantamweight, which I guess at the time he was still kind of flirting, I think, between both. But it's not true that it, it, we were waiting on Yuri to do it. I do agree that the worm has kind of turned even more since then. But just to set, set the record straight, that's not quite true. Obviously, Frank Mir had 11 months after he broke his femur in September of 2004 during a motorcycle accident, they waited till I think um, the subsequent August when it came around, and then they eventually stripped him. Um, obviously, there's been some other ones, but you know, uh, Jamal Hill kind of sort of a strip slash vacancy, whatever you want to call that. Um, the only one that's a little bit different would be the Dominic Cruz one. They waited about two years of him being inactive or just not competing before they decided to institute an interim champion, or I think he vacated one of the two, but it was a two-year gap before they instituted a change. Um, I think that's right. I think it was the, they, they created the interim. Um, let me just say this. People think I'm actively saying, you, you have no choice but to strip John Jones. That's what this all comes down to, and that's really not the point. It's not the point. First of all, let's just be very clear here. There are no rules governing this. 
This is not something that is governed by any relevant athletic commission. They don't have any say or, frankly, even any jurisdiction over this matter in terms of the particulars. They have say over the sport and any kind of onerous contracts or whatever, but not over these kinds of more granular granular decisions that a promoter might make. That's the first thing. Everyone is just kind of making it up as they go. In a sport where the promoter owns the title, which they don't in boxing, right? There is no matchroom 147-pound champ. There is no top-rank heavyweight champ. There's only the WBC, WBO, WBA, or IBF. So they set the rules about how titles are administered, not the promoter. But in MMA, there's no regulation, so the promoter gets to decide that. They have total and complete control. There's nothing in any kind of written law that's dictating any of this. We're all just making it up as we go. They are making it up as we go. That's the first point I'd like to make. The second point I would like to make is that a lot of how you view this situation will depend on what value you ascribe to John Jones versus Steve Miocic. I do not put a ton of value on that. I do not. It doesn't do much for me. And I know everyone's like, oh, it's the greatest versus the greatest heavyweight of all time. Guys, this is a promoter's talking point designed to get you to want to watch. And I don't begrudge them that, to be, all, to be honest with you. I'm not saying you have to buy into it, but I don't fault a promoter for trying to sell a fight based on some kind of talking point scenario. That's that's what they're going to do. So it's really not even a big deal there. But you have to be able to see through it. That's the point. John has been inactive for quite some time, right? It could be uh, as much as 18 months between his last title fight and the next one if they don't strip him, which is fine given one consideration. But the point I'm, I, I, I want to make here uh, about all this in addition to just, you know, what on earth is the value of John versus Stipe once you strip away the talking points, you've got a 40 year old plus Stipe whose last fight against Francis not only ended poorly, he didn't look good at all in that fight. Please go back and watch that. Dude, Francis won that from the opening bell to the, to the, to the last punch. It was one way traffic. He looked terrible there. He's already basically retired. I respect what he has done, but I'm asking about his current place. He's the best guy in the division, not even close. I would favor Tom Aspinall to wipe the floor with him. And I think you guys probably would too. Probably Sergey Pavlovich too, maybe. Um, Curtis Blades versus Stipe would be kind of interesting at this point too. Did you guys see him walk out at the last UFC event? I mean, God only knows what he has sacrificed on the altar of athletic greatness. I don't, you know, Stipe has done amazing things, but it looks like he has trouble walking. I've said this before. He looked like from the old school Planet of the Apes. He looked like Cornelius from Planet of the Apes. Where he's kind of walking in this sort of hunt. I'm not. I'm not even trying to be despair. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm just trying to be honest about what's there. They want us to believe that that guy is he the greatest of all time. Well, potentially, but let's say he retired. Would you change that about him? No, he would still be that if you're actually saying. It. In other words, he doesn't lose that title if you really believe that it's true by virtue of being active or inactive. It's just inherently true. But if he's inactive because he's retiring, that means it doesn't that that title doesn't correspond to what the actual ranking would be about where he actually sits in the division, especially being off this long. And then his last fight being a terrible loss uh, to Francis. Like where does he actually sit in the division? It's not at the top. It's not at the top. It's not even, it's not even close to the top to be per perfectly honest with you. Uh, I just don't believe that. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence to conclude that. So like between these two factors that the UFC can just do whatever they want. There's no commission oversight or, or jurisdiction. The promoter owns the title. And then on top of it, 
they're trying to sell you a talking point. Maybe you like that fight, maybe you don't. I think that fight is a gigantic waste of time, and I don't have any interest in seeing it. Here's the final point. You do not have to strip John. But guys, what the fuck is the point of having a champion in essentially in recess, creating him an interim champion, and then not putting the interim champion on a path to unify? That's the whole fucking point. That's that's the whole gig. The whole gig is fine. We're not going to strip this guy. We're going to let the interim guy uh, do what he's doing in the in the, in the quite literally the interim. And then when the two come back, they'll unify. You know, I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But if like whoever has the interim title, whether it's Aspinall or somebody else, by the time John comes back, he'll face the winner of John versus Stipe. No, the fuck he won't. No, the fuck he won't. There, the dude. I don't know. I cannot declare to you that I certifiably know what John is going to do after that fight if he gets it, or or what or Stipe is going to do. What I can tell you is, um, having talked or what they've said publicly, and then in certain cases having talked to people who are close to either of them, uh, they plan on retiring. They don't plan on fighting past that. Like that's what they want to do, um, which of course is their choice. But once more. If you've got this architecture which demands unification at the end and you've denied him that, what the fuck are we doing? It just doesn't even make any sense. The entire point of having the interim title float in the absence of the champion is so that there is a unification upon his or her return. We're just going to take that away? Or pretend, oh yeah, like we're going we're gonna to give that to the winner and then, oh, but they decide to retire. I guess we can't. Nah, no thank you. You do not have to strip John. I'm not actively calling for it, but you got to make a call here. Either you, he can keep the title and he has to fight the the interim champion upon his return, or you can just promote Tom to full-on champion and strip him, and then you can, he can figure it out from there. That's what should happen. One of the two. But like changing the architecture of what it means to have champions and then interim titles and what that's supposed to do to preserve a fight that is functionally meaningless for the heavyweight division as it stands today, to me, seems crazy. And I'm sure it would do well at the at the box office, but I don't think it's going to do like that well. John's going to do well almost no matter what. Um, yeah, I think it's a fucking giant waste of time. A giant waste of time. So I realized that they can create interim titles whenever they want. They can remove them whenever they want. Like All of this stuff, they can make it up. But if you're going to be out for, and it comes down to this, shit, it comes down to this. Someone make for me the argument that it's perfectly acceptable that the heavyweight title is not in rotation for 18 months on a, in a situation where there's no unification later either. We're just going to let that shit sit dormant? 18 months? What is the argument for that? Make the argument about why that should be dormant. <clears throat> and this is the, the thing that everyone always says. You know, I saw oh, everyone, I, when, when John had that message, like, I've done this in the fight game, which I'm not challenging. He said those things. He's, or rather, I'm not challenging that those, those things are true. I think they are true. What the fuck is the point? Hi, hi guys. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm six foot four. I have a beard. Uh, I'm wearing a black shirt. I live in Washington, D.C. I don't like Skittles that much. When I go to the movies, I enjoy Twizzlers and a Coke Zero. Um, make me president. 
someone might be like, well, what the fuck is the fact that you are that tall and you like Twizzlers have to do with you being president? Well, I'm just, I'm just stating for you like things about me. <laughs> this is what he did. I've done this. I've done that. I've done that. None of those things confer the benefit he's asking for. N- none of them. Like they're absolutely irrelevant. Irrelevant. Oh, I've beaten all the best guys. Great. What the fuck does that have to do with how long we're going to keep this shit on ice? Nothing. Nothing. Except in MMA, the only thing that ever matters is power. It, it doesn't matter if you say absolutely nonsensical, dumb shit. If you're powerful in this industry, people will go, oh, yeah, fucking that's right. And it and the opposite is true. It doesn't matter how truthful you are. If you're the tiniest shrew in the industry, you can shout it from the rooftops. No one's going to listen to you. This entire industry and the people in it are solely and exclusively focused on what powerful people say absolutely 100% irrespective of the truth. The last thing I would say about this, if I may, is... John is his own guy. He can make his own decisions. And I don't know why he made any of them in terms of the timing or what. Only he really knows it. And that's the truth. We can speculate all we want, but none of us actually know. I don't know why he took as much time off as he did and when he came back when he did. And and obviously, I don't think he like you know chose to be injured. He got bad luck. So you know a lot of these factors are in some ways out of his control. But if he comes back and had an opportunity to fight Francis, never did... If he wanted to, they'd make an opportunity for him to fight Tom and then doesn't. And he ends up fighting Cyril Ghosn and then like a really plus 40 Stipe Miocic and then calls it a day. Are you going to be satisfied just as a personal as a personal level? Not like judging John. Just on a personal level, are you going to be satisfied with that? That would be very unsatisfying to me. I, I It might be what he does because he can make these calls for himself. I'm just saying as a person, that's what you want? You want John to go through? Beat Cyril Gaon in, what was it, like fucking five seconds? The dude just got completely run over. And then if he goes in there and, and beats, a, a, a again, relatively speaking, an over-the-hill Stipe, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I feel totally satisfied with that. What the fuck are y'all talking about? What, what are we talking about here? Guys, we have an ascendant talent at heavyweight. So we think with Tom Aspinall. Siphoning him off. From the rest of the elite side of the game. Can't fight Stipe. Can't fight John. And they certainly won't make, probably in all likelihood, any kind of effort at talking to the PFL for for Aspinall to fight Francis. He can't fight any of the top guys. They want him to fight everybody else but the ones that matter. Yeah, no thank you. No thank you. (laughs) Sorry. No thank you. I don't, not, not interested. Not interested even a little bit in any of that. No, 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 no. Waste of time. Waste of time. Waste of time to do that in the way which it's being set up to be done. So uh, I guess, like I said, if there's some people out there who are going to be like, I love the Stipe and John fight. Uh, okay, more power to you. But um, I think that fight is a gigantic waste of time. And I have no interest in it whatsoever. None. Zero. Zilch. Oh, that's a fun one. Thoughts on Dana saying he doesn't think this generation is capable <laughs> Of storming a beach somewhere like previous generations on the Nelk podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that's a funny one. Uh, I don't quite know what he means. Like, in practical terms, what does that mean? Does that mean... 
the current members of our armed forces would be unable to meet a challenge like that if the world affairs called for it. Is that what you mean? I don't know. And again, I'm I'm asking because I don't know. It's not clear. When people say stuff like that, when you ask, you have to ask them to clarify, like in practical terms, what does that mean? Um, because I can tell you, I find that most people who have, like, I know, I know, I, I hate wading into these culture wars, but they're inevitable. All of these people who are like, oh, the American military has gone woke. These are the dumbest, mo- and I'm not saying Dana said this. I want to be clear about that because, I, again, I'm not really sure what he means. But for the folks who do say that, like, oh, the American military is going well, it's just the dumbest shit you've ever heard in your life. It's the fucking opposite of that, for better or for worse. It's the complete fucking opposite of that. Like, it's just so fucking stupid when people say shit like that. It's just not, it doesn't even border. Like, like the, the, the service men and women of the United States of America, as it stands today, are incredible. I mean, you could, you could say that maybe they're trained for a theater of war that has grown outdated. You could potentially make some comments like that. You could say that, for example, during my time in the military, we saw artillery's function and usefulness significantly reduced for other forms of um, either mechanized or you know infantry combat. Right, that's true. So there was changes into what kind of skills were taught and recruited for. Um, but this idea that like the current state of who compromise, who comprises our armed forces would be unwilling or unable to meet these tasks. It's like, dude, first of all, unless you've really, I'm not one of these guys who's like, if you've never served, you can't criticize the military far from it. You certainly can, although you should have an informed perspective, but the ones who like act like the guard, the guardians of the military's like, um, integrity or almost like masculine such as a thing can be said identity these are the least qualified people to do it they don't know a thing about how the military operates who's recruited to do it what these guys are actually capable of any of that shit like all of that these are people utterly divorced from who is actually joining under what terms they join what they're being taught how they're able to execute what their what their what what their record shows should they experience combat like it's just it's just silliness. So again, I don't really know like in practical terms what he is saying about that. And I'm not suggesting that people can't have valid criticisms about the usefulness of modern military training in certain capacities. Uh, but just being like, oh, this generation is soft and they'd be incapable of acting in the form of heroics that we or military heroics. That we saw in previous generations. Not to diminish what the greatest generation did. Such as we call them that. It is quite remarkable what they were able to achieve. I have not the slightest doubt. Um, our military. And the, fo- the men and women who comprise it. Could uh, meet the task. Not even. Not even of all the things I would ever lose sleep on. That would be the least of it. Dude these are people who are. At least the, the Bubba's I served with. And the ones I encounter even today. Um, these are gung ho motherfuckers man. These are gung-ho motherfuckers to the nth degree, almost to a silly degree. Um, and the fact that you got men and women of my college years to sign up for an absolutely uh, failed mission in trying to preserve Afghanistan uh, or turn it to some kind of democracy and then similarly in a totally failed effort in Iraq. And these were not even like high moral causes, right? This is not defeating the Nazis far from it. I mean, yes, ISIS was really bad, but that's not the same thing as um, trying to trying to create any such as you want to call that the actual mission of 
preserving democracy and in and uh, creating democracy in and functioning governments in the Middle East. That's not even close to. The, I mean, that was a moral disaster. We're talking about a completely different one. That war was only four years long as well. Like, do I think you could find people enough to do that job effectively among the today's generation? Yes, of course you could. I don't. I don't. I don't. I find the notion you can question that from the outside without any really serious perspective silly. I think what he's sort of pointing out is um, the sense that like. Um, the current generation is unequipped for challenge that they want handouts and they want breaks. I mean, I think there probably is a little bit of something to some of these criticisms. I don't think they're totally out of place. There is a little bit of stick to itness and uh, perseverance that, you know, is always um, going to be a hard lesson for any generation. And a lot of folks are never going to pick up on it. And it's going to be a message that falls on deaf ears. Uh, but folks, I'll just understand something like, you know, when, Dana is a very successful businessman, but he got his start because his friends were billionaires. And that's not a knock, that's a fact. And so, like, when people have, like, grand ideas about hustling and busting down doors, and then you find out that they were financed by billionaires, it's like, well, dude, I got a lot of ideas too. How would they look? Like, so projecting this, like, hustle culture shit, you know, from the ground up. But again, dude, don't get me wrong. Like Dana has worked very, 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 very hard. Like once they got their foot in the door, dude, they worked. I, I don't take any of that away from them. And they had a good ideas. Like they, they deserve their success. That's not what I'm arguing. What I'm arguing is the kind of mindset where you think everything I've done has been like this hard, overcoming, labored, you know, uh, grindstone kind of shit. And everyone else is simply too unwilling to, you know, once more into the breach, dear friends, kind of attitude when it's like, well, I don't know, I, I, I might try that breach if I had some billionaire friends to help me get along the way. It's like the, 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 the mindset that is created from success um, and then trying to apply that in other areas and seeing everyone's particular deficiencies without recognizing the incredible boost of fortunes that got someone to that place and that maybe that artificial worldview that's created by that success should probably be checked in terms of assessing everyone else's strength of character. I don't know. Uh, we could use a little bit more of that. You know, we could use a lot more of that. The hustle culture people are, you know, and that's not exactly what Dana's doing, but the hustle culture people are just selling you a bunch of bullshit. They're just, you know, oh, I got up at five. I did fucking ice baths and I fasted for the last 86 hours. You can fast for 86 hours if you want to. That's cool. Um, but, like using that as an approximation to gauge the strength of character of our armed services or the people who make it up, who used to, who do now, and what that would all look like. These are utterly disparate things that have no connection to one another, like zero. Like what is Dana's ability to assess military readiness? <laughs> what? What? I, I don't know again, and I, maybe he doesn't, maybe he didn't mean it that way. Maybe he means it a slightly different way. I don't know, but it's just one of those things like, the people who talk, maybe he didn't mean it that way. I don't know. Maybe he didn't mean it that way. I, I don't, I don't, I don't pay it much mind. I don't, I don't, I, and I, I would strongly encourage you not to either.
Are you surprised that the likes of Eddie and Rockhold, proven warriors in MMA, are essentially quitting in their bare-knuckle fights, essentially due to how brutal it is? No. It shows us four-ounce gloves actually make a big difference, and no gloves in UFC would be a terrible idea, in my opinion. Well, terrible depending on what you think, or rather, what you uh, value. Might cut down on head trauma. That's not nothing, but I get your point. It would certainly be weird. Um... No. Two things, though. One, Eddie didn't quit. His corner threw in the towel, and wisely so. Wisely so. That was a good call by Mark Henry to save Eddie from any further punishment. But it wasn't like Eddie was like, no moss. Guys, Subriel Matias, do you know who he is? Subriel Matias? <laughs> Subriel Matias, his last five opponents, five opponents in a row have all quit on the stool, saying, fuck this. I don't want any more of this Puerto Rican fella. No thank you. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Good on that. Good on that. We're talking like, and people have been like, well, he, how come he doesn't have a lot of KOs? Well, first of all, like, go to the, the last fight, the Ergachev fight. The fight went to like, what, five, six rounds? He didn't start boxing him until the fourth. Um, and then the fifth was a bad round and maybe it was between the fifth and sixth. Like it was right there. It was like two rounds of him just getting pummeled. And he was like, dude, uh-uh, I've had enough. So it's a high vo- a punching volume. And he's, you know, he's not like super far away. He's usually like right on top of the guy, right? Like coming around this way. So, you know, he doesn't get the same amount of like torque and push on him, but clearly dude, when he hits, it is a problem for these guys. It's a problem. And again, I want to say this one more time. I do not bring this up as any kind of bragging point. I don't mean it this way at all. Far from it. I saw someone else took some comments that I made and made a video out of it and used it in a way to promote it under the circumstances. And I did not like it, um, which is why I never shared it because I hated the way that they had presented it. Uh, but you'll recall, Subriel Matias was the guy who fought uh, Maxim Dadashev here at in PG County, and unfortunately, after 11 rounds, Maxim Dadashev uh, quite sadly lost his life. It's very, very sad. I bring this all up to say, not as some kind of like, isn't that cool that this happened to Subriel? No, it's a it's a tragedy. It's a disaster. But it should tell us, Jesus, dude, that guy is a punisher. Like it's danger. It's like we know when people like f- do boxing, it's in, certainly very inherently dangerous. Dude, it's very dangerous to fight that guy. If he is moving downhill on you as a cornerman, you have a responsibility to look at that fight very closely and not let it go any longer than it needs to. And again, that's like I, we can say the other stuff. The five guys retiring, you can brag about that. You can't brag about the other part, but you can use the two. It's like what does the broader picture tell us? The broader picture tells us that Subriel Matias is just an absolute dynamite force uh, and terrifying in the way he can make grown boxers, high-level good ones, just say, I don't want any more. Five in a row, five in a row. That's not what happened to Eddie. That is what kind of happened to Luke Rockhold a little bit, losing teeth. But dude, the, the damage is so apparent. It's not in your brain and you don't get to feel it until your career is over and all of a sudden you can't remember where your car keys are. It's not that. It's your teeth get knocked out. Your eye completely swells. Your lip gets severed. And of course, you know, we've seen some of this stuff in MMA as well, but it just seems so much faster, so much more regularly visible in bare knuckle. Like it's just, it's right there in front of you. Uh, I mean, these guys must look like Halloween characters in 
in an ER every time they show up. Like, how the fuck did this guy get here? Did you get a... You ever seen the picture of Jason Knight after his fight with... Um, who was uh, Artem? Artem Artem Lobov? I was doing the train. Choo-choo. Dude, it looked like both of them had been attacked by a bear. Um, you know, people are going to have different feelings about that. They're not going to want to go through some of that stuff. It the, the, the very nature of having your face torn apart and your teeth broken or dislodged completely and your hands of course are going to be a huge mess and you know you're fighting in this really like everything's a sprint it's two minutes it's it's it tests your metal in ways that um you know are unusual but the point i would make i would add to this is a little bit he got rockhold at the end of his career he got eddie towards the end of his career right he's not getting them fresh and so I think partly that's kind of proving it. So I do think that there's a lot of aspects in terms of facial lacerations and individual kinds of not just cosmetic injury, but um, immediate uh, graphic injury that I think can shake people a little bit in ways that they ordinarily wouldn't be. Um, but also these other factors are in play. Good question. Has Kelvin Gastelum hit his ceiling as a fighter, or does he still have unfulfilled potential? I think the door is starting to close, is what I would say. I think that door is starting to close a little bit. Um, he went down back to welterweight, and he looked great on the scale. I thought he had zip and pop in as much as he could against Sean Brady. And... Sean Brady manhandled him. Manhandled him. Now, you might say, well, Brady is unique among welterweights in his ability to physically manhandle someone on the mat. Okay, fair enough. But did it look to you like going to welterweight conferred any physical advantages? Didn't look that way to me. Didn't look that way to me. And of course, who was... Gastelum supposed to fight prior to this, Rachmanov, right? He wasn't trying to go back to welterweight Gastelum and then fight. You know, I'm going to fight, you know, guys 16 to 20 or something like that. He was trying to go right to the heart of the division, Rachmanov. If that doesn't work, I'm going to take on Sean Brady. Like, you know, guys inside the top 10, basically. Uh, top five, potentially, depending on where they're at. Um, I think they, I think Rachmanov's like five or six, but okay. The heart of that division. I think he could go and still get better and I think beat some guys in this division and maybe put together a decent campaign. I think at 32 years of age, might be a little bit foolish to write him off. Uh, however, the window is closing rapidly. If you're 32, which is supposed to be the prime of your career, like right at it for prize fighters, they're often very, very good at 32, and you move back to a smaller weight class where you're supposed to retain physical advantages and you get manhandled on the point to being submitted Granted, by one of the guys who's really good at doing it, but who else in that division? I mean, you know, I guess there's a couple of the fights he could get. There's like a Wonder Boy fight he could get that wouldn't be that way. Maybe he could fight Michelle Potato. I guess he went 185 at this point, but um, you know, there's a couple of matchups you could get along the way where it wouldn't be necessarily under the gun like that. But it just looks to me like the development hasn't really gone the way uh, it could have. Maybe should have is a different word. Um, He's not untalented. He, he will win fights. But it looked to me like 
everything you wanted 170 to be for you on your return, this fight was the opposite of that. He got mounted, you know. I mean, it was it was bad. It was bad. So it's like, well, where do you go from here? Like, Sean Brady is somewhat unique, obviously, as a top welterweight. But like, this is sort of what he's. The guys are better now, right? Sean's better in this one than that one. But the guys, the level has has gone up. Um, and so I I, I worry for him. It's it might be a little too late. Uh, hey Luke, if it's true that Kadyrov adjacent fighters like Hamzat will have perma visa issues, should the UFC be transparent about that? And what are the broader ramifications of potentially having a UFC champion that cannot work in the U.S.? Yeah, great question. Uh, it certainly m- makes them prioritize their overseas pay per view efforts in ways they haven't before, which we've talked about, right? Where you can do the pay per view in the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday in like Fight Island or whatever, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, whatever, and um, it can still do pretty well. You're closer to normal time for Europe. Like, there's some interesting trade-offs that kind of make it all work. Um, should they be more transparent about it? Yeah. Hey, have you guys seen that meme floating around? It's like, let me just give you an example. It's like, hey, we're plumbers. And then people will be like, will say some sarcastic thing that plumbers do. Or like, hey, we're school teachers. We think your kid is stupid too. Hey, we're school teachers. We, we know. Is it great to have the summers off? Yes. Have you guys seen this meme? And they do it for any kind of thing. They should do one for MMA media. It's like, we're MMA media. We're not going to ask Dana White one difficult fucking question if our life depends on it. Like, we're not going to do it. You know, we're MMA media. We just we just print what we're told. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they absolutely should be. Um, and, you know, if... I mean, just think about this for a second. Imagine if you didn't have a top NBA player because they were alleged to, or at least in the mind of the Treasury Department... Um, engaged in financial dealings with people who uh, were banned from doing business in the country. You know what I mean? It'd be a fucking front page news. Like imagine Luka Doncic or something. He's Slovenian. But like imagine he was wrapped up in this. You'd be like, what the fuck? You know, this would be news everywhere. Like, oh, he can't play in the NBA anymore. Or I guess he can play in like, you know, Canada or something. He could play in for Toronto home games. This would be front page news in the sports world everywhere. Everywhere. And then I mean, just no, nobody cares. Absolutely nobody cares. Um, I don't fully understand why nobody cares, but nobody cares whatsoever. Not even a little. None. So should they be more transparent? Sure. What are the broader ramifications? It could reduce their overall popularity ceiling. That is possible. Um, but I, again, as we've talked about in previous weeks, there are other mechanisms in place that I think could offset some of those losses. It would have been much more serious 10 years ago. Would have been much more serious. Ah. Luke, have you ever watched sumo wrestling? Yes. It has serious high level grappling at the top ranks. Similar to how UFC boiled down, which techniques work best over the years. Sumo has had 2000 years to show what grappling works under the most extreme conditions. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know enough about sumo to give you any kind of informed opinion on it, uh, other than to say, from what I have seen, it seems fucking awesome, and I love it. It's one of the, if not few, I mean only sports, where there is this direct tie-in, not just between 
long-standing historical societal customs, but religious uh, custom as well, intertwined with sports. Sumo is unlike really anything else in the world that I understand. Uh, and I, from what I've seen of it, I love. In fact, um, it wasn't real sumo. It was more like sparring sumo and like sumo for like globetrotter, Hall globetrotter style. But they had a they had a touring show called like Sumo and Sushi. And it went to like Miami, New York, LA, came to DC. I went to the show and it was great. It was great. I mean, again, it was what it was. It was kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters of sumo, but from what they showed us, it was tremendous. I would love to see sumo. I would love to watch more sumo. I wish they could do more sumo here. Um, it, again, it's a very, very uniquely Japanese thing. I mean, I'm sure I know that there are other, um, uh, you know, there's been Polynesian champions who've been Yokozunas. There've been European ones that have done well or whatever, but it's still a uniquely kind of Japanese thing. And I love it. I just, I can't tell you a whole lot about it. Um, I just, I casually enjoy it. Someone wants me to do my mustard rant again. I'm not doing that shit. Uh, let's see if we got one more. Yeah, one more here. Oh, someone was asking, what about the uh, Empire MMA card? Are we going to get more of those? I hope. I hope. It came together very quickly. I know the guy who runs the show, and uh, he was like, hey, let's let's get it on your channel for U.S. audiences. I was like, sure, no problem. You know, we worked out a bit of a handshake agreement. So um, they have another show in February, I'm told. And at that show, uh, it's supposed to be in Medellin. I've never been to Medellin, so I would actually like to commentate that show. I'd like to go, but I don't know how that's all going to work out just yet. Um, so maybe, maybe, knock on wood, I can go to Medellin in uh, February and do that show with Ben the Bane Davis, uh, who I met, by the way, at the PFL show. Very nice guy. Very nice guy. Uh, one more. One more. I like this question. Luke, I realize that I'm probably what you would call a UFC fan, not an MMA fan. Okay. I watch UFC because I am more, quote, invested, end quote, in the fighters after I learn more about their story and personality via promotional videos or interviews, okay? Is that a function of UFC doing a good job of promoting their fighters? Uh, to an extent, but that's how everybody is. Or is it just because they get much more media coverage through the dominant organization MMA? Little column A, column B. In other words, is UFC doing a far better job of promoting their fighters and telling their stories than other organizations? Well, look, it's a bigger organization. It's an older organization. And it is, they are good promoters. So in general, when they want to, they can be very effective storytellers. But this 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 dynamic you speak of where it's like, you know, I'm more fan of like, once I hear the stories and personalities, I, I become much more attached. That's true for everybody who becomes a fight fan. That's, that's literally the process that everybody takes. So you're not unique in that particular sense. That, that is the common experience. Like, oh my God, this guy was a, who knows, collegiate wrestler. He was a fireman or she was a... MIT scientist or whatever. And you're like, my God, that's so amazing. I would love to learn more. And you get invested in their personal stories. And most people don't know shit about fighting. And so they just, you know, they, they, they which is okay. They, 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 they sort of attach themselves to the personality, to the identity of the person. Um, UFC is good at promoting. They have a lot of arms in which to promote. They have obviously as a bigger organization and more capitalized and they are good at promoting. They're going to have massive social presence. They've got an ESPN broadcast agreement and more to the point, they have the most relevant fighters according to how the public views it. And so by virtue of all of these sort of factors work together, um, yes, you're just going to see more of them. Also, the media has a great incentive 
to promote UFC content. If I write a story or I do an... Uh, folks, let me just explain something to you. Uh, if you, you almost never see me do interviews with Bellator PFL fighters. And it's not because I don't think they're good. It's because if I did, the, the video would do super poorly. Like no one is going to watch that. It doesn't matter how good the fighter is or almost doesn't matter. Like people just don't care for the most part. There are exceptions here or there, but in general, they, it, it will tank. And so as a media person, you are heavily incentivized to then just lean to the one that will give you returns, which of course now at this point is the UFC. So are they good promoters? Yes. Do they have strong distribution channels? Yes. They have strong media partnerships? Yes. They have a media whose incentive-based structure makes them favor that content? Yes. Um, all of those factors are in play. Uh, but do I think they're the only ones who can tell a story? No. No. I told you guys before when I was at the PFL championships, you may not care about the stories they're telling or the people they're telling the stories about. PFL storytelling is good. And folks, pride storytelling was second to fucking none. Second to none. If you've never seen the rivalry explained between Yoshihiro Akiyama and Kazuo Misaki, you don't know what the fuck you're missing. I mean, you just don't know what the fuck you're missing. And that, by the way, let me pull that up here. Because um, I think that extended in a few different directions. God, he fought in Strikeforce, Misaki? I fucking completely forgot that. Oh, he beat Paul Daly in his last fight. God damn. Uh, he fought Akiyama at Yeranoka, which was right after Pride. And did he have one before that? So, no, that was technically in Yeranoka. But they had... Um, did he rematch him later? No, it turns out that was the only one. Fine. Whoever did that uh, work for them, the Yeranoka people, and there must have been some overlap too, by the way. It's a lot of the same people in that community, but uh, the fight community in Japan. But check out who made that, whether it was Pride folks or Yeranoka folks. Check out the people who did the storytelling to promote Yashihiro, um, excuse me, Yoshihiro Akiyama and Kazuo Masaki. Kazuo Masaki, by the way, known as the Grabaka Hitman, which you guys might know Kaposa on Twitter. Screen name, Grabaka Hitman. It comes from Masaki. All right, there we go. Let's go see if you guys have any uh, paid questions. If you do, we'll get to them now. If not, then we'll just have a great day. I can't believe no one's asked about the PBC thing. All right. How many DJs would it take to beat Francis Ngannou? In an MMA fight, would two be enough? Three would probably be enough. Three Demetrius Johnsons? That's probably enough, yeah. My Dolphins whooped that ass. Yes, thank you, Jacob. Very, very nice of you to remind me. Riverboat Ron, gotta go. Yeah, the Commanders, uh, they just suck all the balls. They just suck them all. Every fucking weekend, it's like, I'm, hey, let me go check out the Commander score. Oh, they're losing at FedEx. Boy, a tradition unlike any other. Luke, I'm 22, this person writes, and about to go to graduate school and get my CPA, but I don't have much of a social life. Yeah, okay. Should I be? Should I work on getting into a relationship or continue my goals? Feels like I can't do both. I don't know if you need to get into a romantic relationship. You may just have to extend your social circle. Don't, don't get into a romantic relationship because you're like, well, shit, I'm 22 and I have to. Dude, if you're 22 years old, let me explain something to you. That means you're, I, I'm literally twice your age. You're 20 nothing. Now, if you're unsatisfied with your level of social engagement, then yes, you probably do need to change some things. But like rushing into some kind of romantic relationship, I mean, you can get to one if you want to get into one, if that one, if that if that you know fulfills you. But this idea you have to rush into it like because the clock's ticking or whatever. No, 
God, Jesus, no. Don't make that mistake at all, dude. Like, go see. So, again, change your habits if any kind of social connection has been eroded due to investments. If you're unhappy with the way that has gone. But um, there's many ways to solve that problem that have nothing to do with entering into, you know, forced romantic partnerships. How come no one in MMA media talks about the male coach of Eileen Perez was choking Jocelyn while Perez was on top of her and hitting her? Alexis Davis saw it and talked. Is that right? I thought no one had seen it. Am I misunderstanding the details? Because I thought it was he said, she said, which I'm not I'm not denying that that could have happened. I thought that it was inconclusive. Uh, if it's not, then I will follow up with him because that is admittedly fucking crazy. Du Bois says, why is Alex Pereira's fan base toxic towards Izzy and his fan base? There's lots of people toxic towards Izzy. It's not just his fan base. There's, dude, people love... I mean, it, The entire internet has been eaten by troll culture. The entire internet has been eaten by it. And it's lucrative. People like it. They love just being shitty to everybody that they possibly can. And there is some value to troll culture too. Like, you know, in any kind of... Sp- uh, industry where there's, you know, a, a respectability politics that kind of makes conversations taboo. They'll blast right through that, you know, um, which is great. Like there's not, it's not altogether one bad thing or good thing, but one of the bad things is like they pick out their hobby horses, they go after them, they're relentless with it. Um, Izzy has, you know, just doesn't have the same connection to the fan base that um, certainly Pereira does. I mean, he's more popular in many ways, but you know, I think he rubs a lot of people the wrong way for no particular good reason other than he's just very different from all of them. Again, you don't have to like him. I'm simply saying like what crime was committed in some of these cases, not, you know, it's just a, Oh, he wore a pearl necklace. Great. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but who gives a shit, you know? Um, so it's not just his fan base. There's a lot of people that kind of go after Izzy for that kind of a thing. It's not, it's not altogether on, um, just his fans. I don't think that's quite right. And also it's not, I don't know. I mean, you know, a fighter going back and forth with another fighter is mostly fair game. When the fans pick up on it, you know, there is a there's a tendency to be like, oh, he's the Pied Piper of them. And they should have some awareness about what they're going to say and what effect it will have. But I tend to not see it that way. Like, they use that as license to say whatever they're going to say, but you can't fight the internet also. Like, you kind of have to understand how it works and just maneuver it the best, maneuver through it the best way you can. Johnston says, do you still believe most fights in MMA should end in draws? I don't think I ever thought most fights should end in draws. I think what I would say is that it'd be okay if more fights ended in draws. And this idea that a draw is some kind of anticlimactic ruination uh, of a a bout, I just don't agree with. I don't think that that's true at all. Is MK still negotiating their new deal? Stay tuned, fuckers. Stay tuned. Is what I would say to you. Stay tuned. I mean, we're at CBS. We're happy. But, you know. Um, we're always trying to do things bigger and better. So, we'll see how it goes. This person writes, Max Bounce PG says, Hope Amazon gets more into MMA and buys part of MK. Oh, well, that'd be funny. And backs up the Brinks truck for UNBC. Boy, that'd be great. Maybe PFLator gets a deal with them also. Well, no, they just resell. Oh, well, I guess I guess they could. So I guess PFL, because they've got, yeah, we're, you know, guys, we're going to go buy 
a brand that's been dead for years and we're just going to keep doing zombie Bellator shit, which no, like literally no one is asking for. But I guess they could end up on Amazon, at least in theory, right? So, dude, if you're, I mean, uh, I'm a Prime member. Um, I'm imagining, I mean, I think there's 157 million people who are. Um, you can get one on there. You're not going to get 12 to 14 PBC events. Some are pay-per-view, first of March 2024. Um, some will not be. They'll just be like, like I don't know what they're going to call it, Amazon Prime Championship Boxing. I don't know, whatever. And then, but here's the thing about that PBC deal. Now, no one's telling me shit. Again, I, I'm not coming to you like, I've got the inside scoop, but I'm just doing some math. PBC on Showtime was doing like 30, PBC in general was doing like 30 or more than that shows a year. You've got 12 to 14 on Amazon. Where are the rest going to go? Um, I don't have a phone line to Al Heyman, but I'm going to guess that there's another deal out there ready to be announced at some point, right? That, that's a great deal that they have, but that's probably not the only one. I bet that there's another one coming. So I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Um, is this the one? Yeah. Look, I'm going to see uh, Meshuggah, Whitechapel, and In Flames at the Paramount in Long Island. Any experience seeing any of these bands? I saw In Flames. Uh, not my cup of tea. Whitechapel. So Whitechapel has a great song. The Saw is the Law. That's a good one. I, I like that track. What was the other one? Meshuggah. Meshuggah's really fun. I've never seen them in person, but their music is tremendous. Honestly, it's really fun. Um, yeah, dude. If you want to get in the pit, get in the pit. Knock people the fuck out. If you don't, enjoy it from the sidelines. You know? People always ask, like, what's the advice you have for going to a metal show? Just walk in. <laughs> I don't know what to th I mean, that's not exactly what he's saying, but... Just walk in. Like people are like, what's it like at a Cannibal Corpse show? But yeah, people stand around and listen to music. Some in, there's a pit in the middle. It's pretty normal, actually. You know, yeah, you're, you're around mutants and garbage pail kids, but it's mostly normal. Uh, is there a fighter, active or retired, whose in-ring abilities you rate much lower than the popular opinion? Sort of an MMA, the Godfather's overrated position. Um No, because here's the problem. People are only underrated in the sense that they're forgotten. And no one is really overrated by the time they're done. I mean, you might see people talk shit about Michael Bisping. I'm not one of those guys. You know, that you might hear a little bit of that. Um, but in general, no. Uh, dude, the reality is this. And I've said it a million times. If you just watch the media in any other sport, including the fan base in any other sport, they savage those athletes, destroy them, absolutely annihilate them, just just crush them. Right? Uh, they're quite mean. They're quite mean. In MMA, the opposite happens. Everyone is way too nice. That's why I end up coming off like an asshole to so many people. I'm not trying to be too, too nice. I'm trying to be as truthful as I can be. And it seems like I'm being a dick because everyone else is like, oh, yeah, so-and-so. They're so ready for this. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? No, they're not. Oh, dude, John versus Stipe Miocic. That's the best ever versus the best heavyweight. I, maybe in 2016 or some shit. Not right now. Like, that's not, that's, not what, that's not what that fight is right now. 
you know, at least that's that's what that's what it is on their resumes. That's not what it actually represents as like the best guy versus the best guy in a different sort of identified way. Like, no, that's not what this is about at all. There's nothing to do with it. Oh, uh, Raul Rosas Jr. is, you know, he's destined for stardom. I'm not saying he isn't. I think the jury is out. We don't know. But like this bold confidence in a guy who's got an insanely lopsided game and has already jumped to, as my understanding is through Vegas, through a couple of different gyms, pump the brakes on that. Like pump the brakes on that guy. He just goes on and on and on. So in MMA, I would actually argue everyone is way. I mean, people are shitty to each other. But in terms of like how the actual conversation goes about people's abilities, I don't think they're they're they can be mean and hurtful, but they're not they're not trying to be like um, soberly critical and try to really you know assessing their performance. And so what ends up having currency in like the the, the conversation around them is a sanitized version of what the truth actually ends up being. What's up, Jared? Oh, hey, gifting memberships, dude. Thank you, Minch. That's great. Appreciate you. Would you let Brian Campbell paint a portrait of you? If he was doing it in good faith, yeah, sure. Sure. Damn, look at this. Greg Shu handing out five memberships. Look at that. Amazing. Um, from Duppy Don, thoughts on McGregor's tweets about what's wrong with immigration in Ireland. Dude, I have put this story on the back burner. Also, the compatibility of Western secular ideals with Muslim migrants. I think that's a uh, legitimate question. One that uh, I'm, I think, I'll just say this about the McGregor story. I have it, God, I've got, let's see, one, two, three stories opened about this. I've read only one that was just an angry opinion piece, so I don't really know exactly. So from what I understand, he has become something of a darling to to members of the right slash far right. Again, there's some debate about how much there is. Uh, and I think has, te- is I, did I see this teasing a run for office, including president? I don't know if he's being serious or not, but ugh, I need to, fuck man, I need to read about this one. I've not really sunk my teeth into it uh, yet. Um, also, I think people being like, guys, When you talk about Western secularism and then, you know, to what extent there's any coherency or compatibility with Muslim migrants, you're asking a question on Orientalist terms. This is a book I can recommend for you. It's a difficult read, but it's an important one. Edward Said's Orientalism. This is what you need to read. Questions like that are, in certain respects, very fair, but in most respects, the general framing of that question um can't hold up to scrutiny. Um, and this book is almost not entirely about that, but about what, what folks say when they mean the West and what folks say when they mean the Orient and what those values actually are and how they work together and what the perceived fault lines are and are not really what they imagine them to be. This is a broader conversation you can have in other places. It's actually a fair question to ask, but yeah, let me, let me, let me recommend it one more time. Edward Said, Orientalism. If you're asking who this was, he was a Palestinian Christian, although uh, I think he spoke French and he, his English was perfect, and was a professor professor at Columbia of literary studies. But this book is considered a seminal work on how folks in the West have used what he described as a Orientalist perspective to understand uh, broad swaths of the Middle East and how in doing so they simplified it for their either 
they simplified it for various objectives and ends in a way that didn't actually match or cohere with the with the reality that they were trying to understand. And it had a, a, a uh, series of negative downstream effects. What do you make of Serrano giving up her WBC belt? Good for her. Will it bring about change? Not immediately. Do other organizations have 12 three-minute rounds for women's boxing? I'm not sure which of the other sanctioning bodies do. Some of them do. Uh, I, I would imagine at this point they'll be chomping at the bit if they don't already have it. But yeah, good for Amanda Serrano, right? They don't want to give them 12 minute, uh, excuse me, 12 rounds for three minutes at a time. They want to change the rules for women's boxing in a infantilist kind of way, and it just doesn't hold up to basic scrutiny. They suffer concussion symptoms less, concussion symptoms, and the ability to or the the, the frequency with which you can suffer them are measured, or I should say, heavily correlated by weight class. Uh, Eric McGracken has talked about this at length. Uh, and there's now science and data to back this up within the form of various studies. Like, yeah, yeah. Is the U.S. government and the idea where democracy complete kabuki theater? That's a, that's a big question. I can't help but feel apathetic towards U.S. government and things will always remain the same for us. I'm not sure what to tell you. What you're basically describing is a lack of faith in um, governmental institutions as it stands today. Um, that is at the root of a very complex problem. Um, solvable. Solvable. But that's a... that's a, that's a a Dude, these are good questions, but these are difficult and broad-based ones that we just don't have requisite time to sink our teeth into. But you're describing basically a malaise of um, failures of the elites to use our existing institutions, not merely to protect us, but to meaningfully uh, make our lives better and more useful. And you're like, oh... Um, government can't do that, but we're talking even like basic services, not just, you know, um, things you might perceive as beyond the scope of reasonable government authority or reach. We're talking basic services, the, the, the amount of institutional failure that has bred these kinds of contempt slash apathy, uh, is significant. It's bipartisan, it's lasting and it's real. That's what you're basically feeling, but this is, you can turn this around. It's not, it is not an inevitability. Uh, there is a rumored super fight for UFC 300 that does not involve McGregor. We've been asking about this. I don't know what that would be. I generally don't know what that would be. I don't know what super fight means to Dana anymore. What's up, Steve? Thanks for coming to remember, dude. Appreciate it. Uh, Greg asks, are you familiar with the film critic Kevin McCarthy here in D.C.? Yeah, I was on his show a couple times. As someone who appreciates great interviewing chops like Sean Evans of Hot Ones, I think you'd enjoy his stuff. Dude, I know. So he used to be called BDK. He, like I did, got his start on the Junkies. Shouts to the Junkies. 106.7 The Fan. Used to be uh, WJFK. Um, he was their... He's still their film reviewer, but he was their intern, or they used to pick on him relentlessly for his acne and horrible breath. That's a real thing. And then he kind of graduated and became something quite quite, quite good. I was, I've was i been on his show a number of times. He did a review of um, Warrior on my show actually and uh, or maybe the the one of the, the Tyson movie one one of the two he did a review of some combat sports movie on my show so i know kevin i haven't seen him in a long time but i've i've known him uh for quite some time and at various intervals othello knows him well too othello knows him real well any chance we could see barbus guys i have bad news about barbus uh the good news is he's alive um we found out cuz we Every year we go and we do, well, you know, he didn't, ha he never has any major medical issues. So 
we have to go in to get like updates on like, you know, flea and tick and heartworm shit, you know, all the shots he needs or whatever to like stay active. And so we went in for his uh, yearly medical. Uh, it turns out I had never heard of this. Uh, Barbus has Cushing's disease. Um, you can get different kinds. You can get kind where there can be something that affects your pituitary gland or your adrenal glands. He has the one that's on the pituitary gland. The prognosis is still pretty good. Um, and, uh, it turns out that the kind he has, uh, is very treatable with medicine, but it could lead to neurological conditions down the line, which doesn't sound great. So we actually found out yesterday that, uh, he has Cushing's disease. So, um, not great. Not great. I can put him in here next time, but um, my wife was real sad about that because you remember our cat died a couple of years ago and then Lola died like six months ago, maybe a little more than that. And now Barbus has this issue. So, dude, your pet's dying and getting old fucking sucks. Zero out of 10. Do not recommend. Do not recommend at all. UFC to prime after ESPN. Also, PBC consistently moves broadcast partners. Will this last? It'll probably last for a little while. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know what the terms are that would define success. By the way, a lot of those things where it's like, oh, they didn't last on X or Y network, those were just time buys. Like, they weren't ever going to last. Those were just temporary, you know, um, quick fixes where they weren't really offering meaningful uh, uh compelling product and so that's why they, they didn't last they were either paid to be there they were paying to be there um or it was like you know we're going to give you such a little low amount that canceling doesn't mean anything and that's the way the product was designed intentionally in that way um so you know there's that uh i guess we'll see it's a new frontier i i i what is amazon looking for with these does it have to do well on the fight nights what kind of wraparound content are they going to build? Are boxing fans really going to use the service? I don't know. I don't know. I tend to think it will do well because I, I think they're probably situated to do well. I don't know about you guys. I love uh, Amazon's Thursday night coverage, which is today. Um, but we shall see. So I have the opposite issue with that 22-year-old this person writes. I'm 33 and just been living my life traveling, etc. My parents keep saying I should be in a relationship. Any potential advice? Do you want to be? What do you want to do? I mean, isn't that the ultimate question? What do you want to do? Right? Do you want to do that stuff? Um... How do I explain this to you guys? I think most things in life you should give a, give a shot to. Hard work and sort of monastic life at times. You should give that a shot. Large circle of friends. And what that does for you, you should try and give that a shot. Building community, either with a church, a rec league, you name it. Any kind of thing. Um, you should always give those kinds of things a shot uh, and see what they do for you. But, you know... There are plenty of people who don't necessarily need or want those things and desire them for their life in the way that you might imagine. I will tell you that um, it has worked out really well for me up to this point. Knock on wood. Um, you know, I found a partner who is legitimately like a very good person in a like in a way that is just frankly quite surprising. The sort of 
obvious moral decision making that they have. Othello, Othello knows my wife. He could tell you. Um, it's it has changed my life profoundly, and then becoming a father has been just an enormous gift um, in ways that really altered who I am. And so I am glad that I went down the path, but I know folks that this would not necessarily be the best path for. So why should they do it? Um, my, my advice to you would, would be to, you know, if you're 33, I got married at 32, but you don't have to get married at 32. I, I, in fact, I don't think men should get married before 30 anyway, for the most part, exceptions here or there. So listen, I would, I would try out making a better effort at what your parents and other folks might be saying to you, but Everyone is going to have a different set of needs for every different stage of their life. And uh, a one-size-fits-all policy is not going to work. Um, especially if you're having fun and you're enjoying your life. I'm not sure what to say. Any thoughts on this rising? Yes, this Taekwondo donk. Uh, yeah, here's the thing. He looks like a terrifying force. but And the last guy he beat was good. But like the other guys he's beaten were not good. And he's beaten him in like a combined like 30 seconds or something. We need to see a lot more out of him. He looks fun as shit. He looks terrifying. We know so little about him. Are you a fan of horror to an extent? The new Eli Roth film, uh, Eli Roth film Thanksgiving was kind of a breath of fresh air for the slasher and horror genre. I, I have to... Okay, so let me ask you guys a question. Serious question. I haven't seen either. Which do I see next considering I'm not going to see it in the theater. I'm going to see it right at home. Okay. Do I see, uh, I'm almost done with the collect with the, um, the creator. I'm not quite done with it, but I'm getting there. So after this one, do I see killers of the flower moon or do I see Oppenheimer? Which one do I see? Cause if you might be in the theaters, I think you might say, Oh, definitely go see Oppenheimer, but it's at home. So I don't know what kind of a difference that makes killers of the flower moon or Oppenheimer would love to know what you guys think. Please let me know. Uh, use this to get Barbas a treat for me. Sorry about his health issues. Oh, well, thank you, Viagra Mancer. No, I'm serious. That's very, very kind of you. And then also, lastly, uh, Sibbies. Yeah, it sucks, man. When your pets get old, it fucking, it fucking blows, man. It really is the worst. It really is the worst. But um, I, I think he's got at least a couple, maybe, maybe three good years left. Maybe more, but definitely like two or three good years. And so we're going to fill him with as much joy as we can, you know? So... And he has to start medication. Um, okay, that is it today. Kind of a quiet week in the sport. Nothing too crazy going on. But thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. Email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Uh, podcast will go up tonight. We'll change the thumbnail, all that fun stuff. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, you know the drill. Stay frosty.